0: Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Wow, <laughs> that was terrific. Thank you, thank you, Pastor Josh. Thank you, teens. Matt, thanks. Brian, thanks. Thanks guys, appreciate it. I don't know what other church has an elder that plays the electric guitar, I just wanna say that. I just kinda wanna get that out there. I think we gave him a new name to East the Sledge, so we're gonna call him that, so anyway, that way, all right. So as we celebrate the teens, getting ready to go to Jamaica and their ministry that they just had last week in Chicago. And when we think about them going and ministering in other cultures, whether it's a Hispanic culture here in the United States or in Jamaica, or as you and I witness here in the United States, I think the big question is, is why are we doing this? Why are we excited about trying to share our faith? Why are we trying to make Christ known? Why should we even care about that? And what's the purpose of all that? Why send our teenagers to Jamaica? Why go to Chicago? Why witness to neighbors and friends and co-workers? Why do we do that? And it's because of what we're going to learn in the next chapter in the book of Revelation where we're reading today. Uh, You know, the Bible says at the beginning of the book of Revelation that there's a blessing if we read it. So that's one of the reasons why we're studying it. But the blessing comes in finding out what it says and then putting it into practice. And in this chapter, chapter 14, what we're going to see is that your choices and my choices today have consequences that last forever. The decisions you and I make, what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our very lives, who we choose to follow, those decisions have consequences that last forever. We need to be very careful about the choices that we're making today because they have eternal consequences. And so what I would like you to do is take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. And as we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, we're going to see the drama that shows every person's destiny. We're going to see a drama unfold in a visionary form that shows every person's destiny, and this drama is portrayed on this divine stage, so to speak, this pageant on this divine stage, it'll have three acts. And each act has an important message for you and for me because the choices that we make today have consequences forever. And we need to be very careful and mindful of that as well. So in Revelation chapter 14, this is on page 1036, 1036, 1036, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. John, the apostle, writes this, the vision that he received, then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the Lord and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes." These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits to God and the lamb and in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast or its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now here's a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus and I heard a voice from heaven saying write this blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on blessed indeed says the spirit that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them then I looked Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. And the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung a sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. This is the drama of every person's destiny in three acts. Act one is this. John sees a vision of the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the the capital of of God's plan and program on planet Earth. It's it's his location here on Earth. In the Old Testament days and in the time of the, the New Testament, it was Jerusalem the capital of Israel. It was was that place where the temple of God was built that God promised to dwell and that was his dwelling place on earth. Mount Zion is another way of saying where God lives on earth with people. There at the temple is where God dwelt. Revelation describes it even further because at the end of this book when we get to chapter 21 and chapter 22 we see very clearly that there's a new heaven and a new earth and new jerusalem descends out of heaven to the earth and this new city this new jerusalem is mount zion it's the dwelling place of god on earth with all people and i think what john is seeing is a vision it's in the future of when jesus The Lamb of God, remember, that's how he's described in Revelation. The one who was slaughtered for our sins and yet rose from the dead and is alive. This Lamb who seems so weak and innocent and and frail, he's the mighty warrior. He's the mighty conqueror who fought against the devil, who fought against death, who fought against sin, and he's conquered them all. And he's risen victorious. And so here he is, he's standing on Mount Zion. One other thing to note. That when you hear Him standing there, the word that's used, it's the idea of standing, not just in a sense of well, He's not sitting down and He's not lying down and He's not taking a walk. It's not that. It's like He's standing ready for battle. He's standing victoriously. It's like the posture of a soldier who's conquered on the battlefield with his sword and shield and He's victorious. He's, he's won the battle. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God is standing there. And John says, but Jesus is not there by himself. He's accompanied by the 144,000. Now, I know if you're a guest with us today, maybe you're saying, well, all these numbers and all these symbols, it's so complicated. But again, read Revelation. You see the context, compare Scripture with Scripture. And when we do that, we know that the 144,000 were described in chapter 7. And it says that they are the believers who have followed Jesus during this time of great terror the tribulation on earth and they have been faithful in serving him faithful in doing his will faithful in walking with him loving him serving him they're the christians who are alive at that time the followers of jesus i know some believers uh, think that they are only jewish people who have converted to jesus during that time and that could be i understand why they say that But I think really when you read in chapter seven, a better interpretation, a more accurate interpretation is to say that this 144,000 represents all the church that's alive at that time. All of them who are following Christ during that time of great tribulation and persecution. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, who've put their faith in Jesus, who are following him. And so there they are, they're standing with him But they're described in a very unique way. It says that they have the Father's name and the Lamb's name written on their foreheads. Again, in chapter 7, they were described as being sealed with God's name and the Lord's name, the Lamb's name as well. They they belong to Him. They're His property. It also says this, the one that probably stood out to you, it says that they had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones in verse 4 who have not defiled themselves with women. What? What? What is that talking about? Are they, are they celibate? They've never gotten married? Is there something dirty about women? Is that what he's talking about? No. The imagery here is not about celibacy versus marriage. It's not that because the Bible says both callings in life whether you're called to be a single person to serve the Lord or called to be a married person to serve the Lord both are blessed both are honored both have their values and purposes in the plan and program of God so celibacy is not better than being married or married is not being better than being celibate or single that's not the issue the picture here is is these one hundred and forty-four thousand the christians the followers of christ the martyrs for their faith during this time they're described what we see here is a description of them as the lamb's elite warriors you're saying what does that have to do with marriage i know it feels like a battle some days but no that's not what we're talking about okay in ancient israel when men would go out to battle when God was calling them to war, it was considered a holy war. It was actually considered an act of worship to serve the Lord in Israel's army to do God's work and judging his enemies that was a calling it was considered a holy war and if it was considered a holy war then the men who went to battle needed to keep themselves holy and one of the things that god asked them to do and we read this in the law of moses in the old testament was that they were to abstain from sexual relations with their wives before battle they were to they were to devote themselves wholly to prayer to preparing to getting ready for the conflict that they're about to face, to make sure that they're observing the law of God, to make sure that they're right with others, and to focus on that act of worship and that preparing for battle. It's defilement not in the sense of that they got dirty or contaminated somehow, but rather God was saying, I want you to focus on this and be fully devoted to Me because you're going out into battle. I don't want you to be distracted by anything. Even your wife in this moment. I want you to focus on being loyal and fully devoted to me. And so I think this is part of the picture here. These 144,000 are like soldiers who have been devoted to serving the Lord. They have focused on honoring Him and serving Him. There's also a, a sub-layer, so to speak, a secondary layer of this idea of they've not defiled themselves with women. Because remember, the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that idolatry worshiping other gods other than the true and living god who is the creator and judge of all people if you serve some other god if you worship some other philosophy or religion even if it's yourself that's that's called spiritual adultery that's spiritual immorality and later on the the kingdom of the beast that's described it's called babylon And this kingdom is described as a prostitute who is constantly seeking to seduce men and women from their fidelity and loyalty to Jesus. And so there's this constant battle. Am I going to be fully devoted to the Lord or not? And this picture of this 144,000 standing with the Lamb, who's like a warrior, victorious in battle, standing on Mount Zion, the 144,000 are with them, these martyrs who gave their lives. They've been fully devoted to Jesus, and they're standing victorious. That's why they're singing. And notice how the the singing is described. It's It's a victory song. It's a victory song of Jesus rescuing them through His death on the cross and His resurrection. And they have been faithful to Jesus and Jesus has sustained them through all the terror and all the torment of the tribulation. And even though they have sacrificed their lives in obeying Jesus, they're victorious. And so that says that they sing and it sounds like a, a, a rushing, the sound, the, the roar of a waterfall. Or the cataracts on a stream or a river, you know, water rushing forward there. It sounds like booming thunder. But then, so, so that's like the volume of it, it's so loud. But, but then it says, it sounds like all these harpists playing their harps, and, and, and the picture here is not just people strumming their harps and guitars and singing like we heard this morning, but it's bigger than that, it's, it's, it's the, the melody and the, the harmony that goes along with that. It's, just, it's like a beautiful orchestra and choir singing the praise of God. And so these warriors, as they're standing there, they're praising Jesus for the victory that he's given them and it's loud, and it's beautiful, because they're singing the song of praise for the salvation that they've won. This first act is showing us that this can be your destiny. You can be on the winning side. You can be part of this group that's loyal to Jesus no matter what, and you stand victorious The world wants you to think, the devil wants you to think that if you serve Jesus, you're losing stuff. You're just a loser. You'll be defeated. This world will crush you. The devil will crush you. And the truth is, is if you are loyal to Jesus and you put your trust in Him and you follow the Lamb wherever He goes like these guys do, that's what discipleship is. You're doing His will. You're obeying Him. You're following Him. You're trusting Him no matter what. If you do that, you come out on the other side victorious. You're not a loser. And so you have a choice to make. Am I going to be on the, in the Lamb's army or not? Am I going to follow Jesus or not? In the last days, it will be a life or death matter. Because if you choose to follow the beast, if you choose to follow the devil, if you worship them, you will be forever losing your life. But if you choose to follow Christ and you identify with Him, yes, you may be physically killed, but you will gain eternal life forever. Not because of your sacrifice, but because of the sacrifice Jesus made who redeemed you. If you trust in Him, He has redeemed you. He's bought you out of slavery to sin, out of slavery to shame, out of slavery to death. He's redeemed you out of this world and out of the peoples of this world and now you belong to Him. You are His property. And He loves you and cherishes you and wants to lead you. And yes, life is a battle, but He goes with you through that battle and you come out on the other side victorious. The challenge is, if you're not a follower of Christ, to hear the message of this first act, which is simply whose side are you on? Are you choosing the devil and death and destruction, the kingdom of the beast? Or are you choosing the lamb who gave his life for you, who wants to buy you out of slavery to sin and set you free to be his child, his soldier forever? which side will you be on? The message for those of us who are Christians in this first act is to be bold in sharing our faith with others because Christ has set us free and he has made us victorious. Our choices today have consequences forever. We see that here you have to choose whose side are you on? The devil's? Well, Lord, you say, well, I don't have to choose. Well, not choosing is a choice, right? Not choosing Christ automatically by default puts you on the side of the devil and death and destruction. The only way to be set free from that is the lamb who died for you. He can set you free if you trust him. Now, act two tells us also that our choices today have consequences forever. In Act 2, the main actors in this drama, part of the drama, are three angels that go flying by through mid-heaven. They're flying over all the earth. And the picture here is as each of these angels fly by, all humanity hears this message. All you humanity is, is be given a warning here. If Act 1 was a, a celebration, a song, of victory, Act 2 is a warning of defeat and destruction. And so here we kind of see the flip side of victory. Here are the consequences that come if you reject the victory that Christ offers you. So when John says that he saw this first angel flying overhead, the angel is declaring an eternal gospel. The gospel is good news. It's good news that anyone can find salvation in Jesus Christ. They can be rescued from the the terrors of this world, from the slavery of sin. They can be set free and rescued from the judgment that's going to come. They can be freed from all that because Jesus Christ has died for them and has risen for them. And it says here that this gospel was proclaimed to everyone on earth and it's all people need to hear this message and all people are getting the opportunity to hear this message. Everyone is included in this. And he says this, here's the message, fear God, this is in verse 7, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The call that this first angel as he steps onto the stage and flies through mid heaven, he's calling out to all of humanity, here is good news, you have one more chance, this is your last chance. You don't have to give in and follow the beast or the devil. You don't have to go in the ways of destruction and lose your life. You can follow the lamb. Fear God. Worship Him. Give Him glory instead of surrendering to the beast and His kingdom that wants to crush and destroy you and bring you down to hell. You can find freedom and life, but you need to fear God and give Him glory and begin worshiping Him. Now you say, okay, that sounds really spiritual and religious and all of that, and yes it does, but it's, it's kind of like code words for saying you need to repent, turn away from serving yourself and serving other gods and idols, turn away from that sin and turn fully, be fully devoted to Christ, to fear Him and reverence Him, to put Him first, to trust and rely on Him and Him alone. That's what the angel is calling The people of earth, all the people of earth, all the earth dwellers are given this opportunity. They're they're called to worship him and give him glory. The one who created everything that there is and holds everyone accountable for what they do with their lives. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound very good. Where's the good news in that? And the answer is, is the fact that there's one last chance for people to turn away And get off the path of destruction, the highway of destruction, the highway to hell. Get off that and climb the stairs of faith in Christ and trust in Him and find eternal life and salvation. The second actor comes onto the stage. It's the second angel. And his message is really short. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drunk, made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon is the kingdom of the beast. Babylon is is a picture. Every Jewish person, everyone who's familiar with Old Testament history, remembered that Babylon was the one who ultimately, the empire of Nebuchadnezzar, that ultimately conquered Israel and carried off the people in captivity. There were other nations that harassed Israel, other nations that even hauled some of the people of Israel away in captivity, but it was ultimately Babylon that came and conquered Jerusalem. And carried off Daniel and people like him away into slavery. So Babylon was always pictured as the arch enemy kingdom of God. And I'm not sure that this is Babylon in the sense of that somehow on the Euphrates River in modern day Iraq, a new Babylon is going to be rebuilt. As much as it is, it's a symbol, a picture of all the kingdoms of the world that have opposed the people of God. During the time when John is writing, it's the nation and the empire of Rome. It's the new Babylon. All the kingdoms of the earth, all the forces of the earth that conspire against God and resist him, that's Babylon. It's the nation, so to speak, the empire of the beast and his kingdom that's opposed to God, that serves the devil, and that is trying to crush and destroy the people of God. But this angel declares, and this is part of the good news, guess what? Babylon has fallen. Not only that, he says it twice. Fallen, fallen. Why do you think he says it? Is he stuttering? No. He's saying it for emphasis. He's saying that this is emphatic. This is guaranteed. Even though it hasn't happened yet, it's called something that has historically happened. Even though it's something off in the future. It's the idea of so certain in the future. Will this event take place? It's as good as already having been done. Babylon has fallen. Fallen. And he describes her. She's like a prostitute, a harlot, an unfaithful wife who tried to get all the nations to drink the wine of her sexual immorality. And again, the picture here is not only of of immorality in a literal sense, but this spiritual immorality of idolatry and serving others instead of serving the one true living creator God who judges all people. And so he's declaring that there, this Babylon, this kingdom of this world that's constantly trying to get everyone drunk with the immorality, this, this kingdom, it's going to be overthrown defiantly and decisively so. The third actor comes onto the stage, and it's the angel, another angel, a third angel flying by. And he makes the warning about defeat even more clear. Because he says, now listen to this, this is some of the hardest verses in all the Bible to listen to and hear. If anyone worships the beast and its image, the idol that is erected in, in honor of the beast, the statue, receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. If you drink Babylon's wine, if you give in to her false teaching, if you give in to her pressure, to follow her and you resist God and you rebel against God and you choose to go your own sinful way, you're drinking her cup of, of the wine of her passion. Well, guess what? You're gonna get another cup to drink. and You're gonna to have to drink the whole thing because that person will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger. In the ancient world, when they would make wine, they would normally water it down just to make it stretch. Okay, and so they would take maybe one part wine and one part water. They'd mix it together, and that's what they would serve most of the time. Sometimes it was even like two parts wine to three parts water, or even more one part water to three parts. Uh, excuse me, one part wine to three parts water. If you drank wine at full strength, you had one purpose. You wanted to get drunk, and that's what's God's saying here. You're going to drink my wine of my judgment at full strength and it will make you dead drunk you'll be dead drunk with my wrath my anger because you have rejected me you have rebelled against me i created you and you've rejected me i've given you an opportunity to turn to me and be rescued and you've rejected that You are hurting yourself. You are hurting other people. You are mocking me and dishonoring me and rebelling against me. And you even are worshiping my worst enemy. And you're giving him glory and you're calling him your God. You are doing this willfully, even though I have warned you and given you opportunities to not do this and come back to me. My own son died for you to rescue you from this judgment, to give you the power to change, to give you a hope for your future. My son did this. That lamb who was slain for you. All of this happened for you and you have rejected it. And because you have chosen this instead of choosing choosing me, there's only one destiny for you. You have to drink the wine of my wrath. You have to drink it all down to the very bottom. And he describes what that wrath, that anger, holy anger is like. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name It's describing eternal conscious torment. There's no other way to describe this. There's no other way to to really get around us. Now, now some Christians, and and I admit that when I read this, I kind of squirm and I go, you know, finite sins getting infinite punishment, that doesn't seem fair. And I admit that it doesn't seem fair, except maybe finite sins aren't finite. Maybe they have infinite consequences. Maybe there's a weight that really the problem is I reject God and I refuse to believe and whether it makes me a quiet, atheist, agnostic who just minds my own business but I live life without God or it turns me into a mass murderer who slaughters millions. Either way, it's still the same choice. To reject God. The one who's given everything to you. To reject him who offered a way out and offered his forgiveness and acceptance through Christ. This judgment is real, it's true. Some Christians say, well, all right, you die without Christ and you suffer for a while, but eventually you get burned up because, I mean, when I put fire logs in the fireplace, they burn up and they turn to ash and they're all gone. How could they possibly burn forever and ever? So there's this idea of a, one day they'll be annihilated, they'll be gone forever. That's what forever and ever means, the smoke going up forever. It just means that one day it'll end. <laughs> you know what? The same words that are used for forever and ever in eternal judgment here in this passage, it's the same words that describe eternal life. Maybe we're mistaken. Maybe eternal life is only for a little bit of time and then it's over. And and it's the same phrase that's used to describe the everlasting, eternal nature of God. Well, Well, maybe He's only a little bit eternal, you know, half eternal, not all the way eternal, or something like that. No, it's describing, it's used in those passages to describe a God, our Creator, who lives forever, always, world without end. And it describes the eternal life as we have it, from Him, as something that lasts forever and ever and ever and doesn't have end. So we can't take the same word and say that it means that one day it will end for them. No, eternal judgment is not torture, it's punishment. It's like a quarantine where God has to take all the evil of the universe and quarantine it in one place like like a virus that's just existing in a Petri dish locked in a vault in a secure laboratory maybe smallpox or some other disease there's only a little bit of it left and it's in quarantine and you never let it out lest it kill thousands and thousands and thousands of other people god quarantines evil in this place of burning fire and sulfur and keeps it away from the rest of the universe some people say well maybe it's just it endures for a little bit of time and then it's over no it's eternal its smoke goes up forever and ever how can that be i want you to think about something We talk about the resurrection of believers and we say that when we die we're going to receive glorified bodies and these sin diseased bodies, these dying bodies, these weak and frail broken bodies that we have will one day be glorified and look like Christ's resurrection body after he rose from the dead on on Easter Sunday morning. And we rejoice in that and we think about how we're going to be transformed and that's our great blessed hope of that physical transformation there'll be like a a post-human status that somehow these physical bodies will be glorified and made, made everlastingly beautiful and powerful like christ's well there's another resurrection described in the bible a second resurrection you want to be part of the first one but not part of the second one because the second one says that all the dead will be raised all of us And if there's a post-human existence for people who belong to Christ and they receive glorified bodies, doesn't it stand to reason that there's a a resurrection body for people who have died without Christ and they become like what they worship? Because we become like what we worship. And so instead of having the greed and sin and lust of our lives finally taken away forever and ever to become like Jesus in His holiness and love and purity, what if what if we have more greed and more bitterness and more anger and more lust and more hatred and that's compounded in our lives and we become more and more and more like that i think folks that go to hell will actually want to stay there because they hate god so much and they become like what they worship Listen, whenever we talk about hell, we should never talk about it gleefully. We should never say go to hell to somebody. That is the worst thing you could ever say to them. Because you don't want anybody to go there. And that's why these angels are flying through heaven. They're warning humanity and saying you don't have to go there. You don't have to do that. God in His mercy wants to rescue you from that. There's one more chance to come to Jesus and be rescued from this and as believers we hear this and we come to verse 12 and he just simply says this here's a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus there they have faith and they remain faithful to Jesus they keep faith in Jesus they keep trusting him. They keep following him. They keep doing his will. They keep obeying him. And Jesus promises to be faithful to them in the midst of all that. And then the promise comes in verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, because blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. For those that belong to Christ, there's rest. No more torture, no more torment, no more more sorrow and suffering because of Christ. They've been rescued from that and brought through all of that and now they're glorified with the Lord forever. They're on Mount Zion with Him. But those that have rejected Christ, who refuse Him, they suffer forever and ever and ever and there's no let up. You may wrestle with that and say, how is that fair? And I understand how hard that is to accept because I struggle with it too. But the thing is, hell is completely avoidable. It's real. It's coming. But it is avoidable if you put your trust in Christ. He's the one that can set you free and rescue you from the judgment of hell. Let's be honest and say that when we talk about salvation, we're talking about being rescued. What are you being rescued from? Well, part of it is rescued from eternal judgment. That's a good thing, isn't it? And we need to proclaim that and let people know that there is a way of being rescued. So for those of us who are not believers who are here, you've been given another chance. Put your faith in Christ. Christ. Begin following Him. Fear God. Worship Him. Trust in Jesus. Begin following Him. And you will be rescued from this coming judgment. But those of us who are believers here, those of us who love the Lord and are worshiping Him, be a bold witness. Why? Because hell is real. And we have the message that will help people avoid it. We can help rescue people from it if we tell them the gospel. That's why we go on mission trips. That's why we're witnessing to our neighbors and co workers. Because we have the one message that will rescue people from eternal judgment and damnation. Here's Act Three Act Three is two harvests that are compared. The first harvest is a wheat harvest. And there's a person who looks like the Son of Man sitting on a white cloud and he's wearing a gold crown. We know from chapter 1, the person sitting on the cloud that looks like a Son of Man is Jesus. He's sitting on his throne in glory. And an angel comes out of the temple with a message from God the Father and says, throw your sickle to the earth and begin harvesting. And so Jesus swings a sickle across the earth and that sharp curved knife That sickle begins cutting the stalks of grain, and as he does that, they're gathered and brought in as a harvest. Back in Act one, the people standing with Jesus, the hundred and forty four thousand, they're called the first fruits. The first fruits. In ancient Israel, there was a sacrifice that was offered to God as an act of worship that said, thank you, God, for the the harvest that you've given us, and we're hopeful that you're gonna keep blessing us and providing for us. And that that gathering of the best and the first fruits that were harvested, that was called the first fruits. And those crops were presented to God in in anticipation of a future harvest, a further harvest, a greater harvest. I think this first harvest that we see is a picture of those first fruits these are believers i mean some christians disagree with me but i think this first harvest is not a repetition of the same harvest one with wheat and one with grapes one with grain and one with grapes i think rather we see believers in the first because they're not crushed they're not threshed they're not broken down in some way it's different the second harvest there's an angel he's got a sickle he's told to throw his sickle to the earth swing it wide swing it far and begin cutting the grapes and gathering the grapes and he begins to do that these cl- these clusters large clusters of large juicy grapes and he begins taking these bundles and bushels of grapes and he throws them into a wine press this carved out place in the rock that was basically two levels and on the top level you'd throw the grapes in you'd pull the stems off and people would actually get in there in their bare feet and I know a lot of you are thinking about I love Lucy doing that and all that kind of and, and there they are they're stomping on the grapes and as they're stomping on the grapes Hopefully with their clean bare feet, they're doing that. As they're doing that, the, the juice begins to overflow into the bottom trough. And they would begin bottling that, that grape juice. And they would allow it to ferment and it would make their wine. That, that grape harvest was a joyful time. You know, Harvest time in general was a, a joyful time in a community. All the work, all the labor, all the effort to graze these crops had come to fruition literally but here this grape harvest is is not something to rejoice in because it says that the wine press it's it's a wine press of the wrath of God we just read about the wrath of God his judgment against sin and the wine press was trodden outside the city the city new jerusalem and as these grapes are being crushed it said the blood flowed out and can you imagine this scene how it's described And i know some of it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle how high is that you're talking like this horses are a lot taller than me but you're talking about five four five feet deep and it says it goes 1600 stadia that's, that's 184 miles you're talking about a flow of blood a couple feet deep as wide as the entire holy land from the border of syria all the way down to the border of egypt the picture here this fantastic picture is describing in such an extreme way the violence, the destruction the judgment that is pouring out poured out the horror of it all. If you read any histories of some of the Civil War battles, there was one scene I read of where the soldiers were, were trying to, the, the federal soldiers were trying to capture a, a position where the Confederates were on a hilltop. And as they were marching up the hill, they were just getting mowed down, thousands of soldiers just being mowed down. And as the soldiers came up behind them, the, the grass was so slippery because of blood. And the the internal organs and the bodies and the carnage and they were slipping and they were falling down and they were just splattered, covered with it. It's a gross scene. But often battles are like that. And the picture here is when there's this final war of judgment against sin, it's sin that gets destroyed. It's evil that gets judged. It's the wicked who wind up suffering the wrath of God and the carnage is absolute and the judgment is final and it is so horrific and so complete so gory but so final so this last act kind of asks a question which harvest do you want to be part of? Are you part of that first harvest of of the wheat, the first fruits that belong to God and are His property and, and anticipate the future resurrections? Or are you part of that harvest where you've rejected God and you're like the grapes that get cut off and stomped and the blood flows? Which harvest are you going to be part of? And see, the scripture is clear over and over again we reap what we sow. Every choice is an act of planting seeds and every decision is an act that leads to a harvest. We reap what we sow and that's what's portrayed here. We make decisions. Our daily choices today have future consequences, eternal consequences forever. How's that for being redundant? Consequences that last forever. The choices that we make today. And so in all of this, if, if you in this last act are someone who has not yet trusted Christ, which harvest do you want to be part of? Do you want to be God's property forever or do you want to be the object of His judgment? Do you want to be preserved and be part of His family forever or do you want to be crushed under the weight of His holy anger? Which is your decision? And if you're a believer... Here's the choice you have to make. Be a bold witness. Why? Because our decisions have consequences. We reap what we sow. Whatever we've planted, that's what our harvest will be. And since that is true, we have to speak up. Now, I find it very difficult to be a witness for Jesus. I I care very much about what other people think of me, and I often keep my mouth shut because I'm afraid to speak up for Christ you think I like to talk a lot I know that that's okay but I honestly there are times where I am just very tight-lipped when it comes to really speaking up for Christ It might be to my own kids, it might be with my neighbors, it might be to my parents, it might be here at church. But there are times where I keep my mouth shut because I just don't want people to think bad of me. But you know what it says? That the lamb redeemed his people out of this world. He redeemed them from the people of earth. He redeemed them from this earth. And we don't belong to this world anymore. I don't belong to this world anymore. I don't belong to the people of earth anymore. I'm their neighbor, I'm their family member. I love them, I care about them, but I belong to Jesus. And so do you if you're a child of God, if you've trusted Christ. And because I don't belong to this world anymore, but I belong to Christ's world and His kingdom, I belong to Him, I don't have to worry about what other people think. Rather, I can remember that hell is coming and it's avoidable. And every choice has a consequence. And if I choose Jesus if I choose Jesus, then he will bring me through victorious. Jesus wins. That's what Revelation's all about, right? Every choice today has consequences forever. What will you choose? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time that we could be together today. Our hearts are full of joy as we see the teens and their sponsors up front here worshiping you, declaring their desire to serve you in Jamaica, and they've had this opportunity to worship you and do your will in Chicago. Thank you for what they have shared. But Lord, thank you for what your word warns us of here. This is a a gruesome passage. It's a terrifying passage. But I thank you that you give the warning so we can take your way of escape. That we can trust in Christ. That we can find our boldness in Him that we can make sure that we're planting things in our lives, that we're making decisions to follow you and obey you that will reap a harvest of eternal blessing. Thank you that we can do that now, Lord. I pray that you would bless my friends, my brothers and sisters who are here, and I pray that you would stir in our hearts that we would always, always, always endure and keep faith with you no matter what we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you have any-